0: the blessing of this assembly has only been heightened to this point by several things, not the least of which these wonderful songs in which we have just lifted our voices together. Songs such as Soldiers of Christ Arise. What a motivational song encouraging us in our faithfulness to the, to the God of heaven. What about that song relating to I've Got a Mansion Just Over the Hilltop? You know, those kind of songs help to really soothe the spirit. And they lift the appreciation, of course, among, above the mundane matters of this world, helping make sure our focus is on that which it ought to be. It's so good that we can open the Word of God and give reflection to it as well, and for the next few moments, we shall endeavor to do that. Our lesson text, it was read just a minute ago, taken from the 8th chapter of Jeremiah. Admittedly, the last verse of the chapter is the only one that, that was read in our hearing, but I believe that'll be the principal one that'll be of needfulness and forcefulness for the next few moments as we give thought to, is there no bomb in Gilead? You may wonder what that question meant. And what was the purpose behind the inspired prophet, through the motivation of the Spirit, asking it? I believe we shall uncover that this morning and not only do that in a way remindful of the circumstances of their day and time, but it'll have a great deal to say to you and me as well. The introductory slide, the one that you and I should consider first, is basically a very general and almost obvious set of ideas. I believe it's fair to say that most of us have a fairly high estimation of the medical profession. We trust doctors to care for our physical body. We trust nurses and others who have been skilled and prepared in those ways, and we value their judgments. We're willing to pay for those judgments, and sometimes we are willing to pay extensive amounts, again, for their skilled estimations. I might say that quite often the Word of God reminds us of the place of the medical profession even back then. Not only Old Testament, but even in the New. You may notice about the middle of that slide then uh, a rather interesting and almost obvious set of ideas. What do you think about that circumstance? Would it not be fair to say it's a bit shocking when you encounter someone who in fact has found a particular medical opinion from someone who is trustworthy? Some course of action needs to be done, needs to be changed. Medicine needs to be utilized and applied and yet the person, though having access to it, will not take it. Isn't that frustrating? Maybe we've known of family members like that. Maybe we've known of neighbors or friends. It's not that they didn't have the medicine. It's not that they didn't have access to it. They had it, just wouldn't take it for no obviously good reason. I wonder if the Bible has anything to say about that. Not only does it, but we shall find it in the context of our discussion this morning. Let's begin our lesson by first highlighting the text itself. I've already asked the question, and you might well have noted it as well. What's God having to say by the nature of this question? Let's build it in the following way. First of all, the prophet Jeremiah labored in the closing days of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, early in his particular era as a prophet, the people were somewhat closer to the things of God. That mean, By that I simply mean they were not as given to idolatry then. But as the years wore on, the influences became perhaps stronger and at least their choices became more foolish. They began to turn their attention away from God, to follow other things, to give attention to other ways of thinking and other ways of life. And as they did that, problems arose, not only individually, but for the nation as a whole. Could I invite you to notice at the top of that slide, by the time we arrive at Jeremiah 8, God's people were hurting. May I repeat, God's people were suffering. A few examples would be these. In Jeremiah 14, we learned there was dramatic famine in the land, and it was no small famine. It was severe and sore, there just wasn't much food, you see. Now, we all know that you take a man's food away long enough, things are going to get bad. People will do anything to make sure that they're not hungry. But it's not just a matter in famine. Fear had gripped the people. And in addition to these matters, we even noticed that conditions in general were very unfavorable and unpleasant. I might be quick to say, God was quick to tell the people how all of this came about. You brought it on yourself. Can you imagine the reaction of the people when the prophet would say in Jeremiah 4, verse 18, Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thine heart. In the context, we find then that God had told the people, You're your own worst enemy. You've brought all of this on yourself because of the choices and the pursuits in life that you have made. Is it any wonder then, more than once in the book, we find the people challenged to change, to repent, to do something different? And certainly, most importantly, was to turn their attention to the God of heaven. In continuance on that slide, might we point out, though, that not only were the people hurt, Let's now revisit our text and look one verse earlier in Jeremiah 8.21. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. We find two things about that passage, not the least of which is this. First of all, even the prophet Jeremiah was... Even though he wasn't one of the, of the disobedient ones, he was hurt because he saw the suffering of his people. Isn't it still true? And it shall always be. Christians are the ones whose heart will ache the most in light of sin. The world doesn't care about sin. They're already engulfed in it and seemingly don't appreciate it. What it means and what it shall do. Christians are the ones whose hearts will break because of sin. Not only sin in us, but sin in others. Because we know what that kind of action will mean, and we understand where it shall take the people when they are given to that. The text again said, "...for the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt." Is it any wonder Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet of Judah? How often do we read in the biblical text how that Jeremiah shed tears over what the people were doing and what it is they had chosen to follow. Jeremiah 9 verse 1 says so plainly, as he himself spoke about the tears gushing, literally flowing from his head. To think about sin in that connection now brings us to the next point on the slide. Given that the people were hurting, given that they were in such dire straits, isn't there then the need for a doctor? When you and I find ourselves in sufficient pain, we will seek, you would think, the services of a medical professional who might alleviate that pain and who might prescribe the necessary means to remove it. Sometimes that's medicine. Sometimes that's surgery. Sometimes that's, yea, other matters besides that. Is it any wonder that in verse 21, after making note of the hurt of the people, now we arrive at verse number 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Let's pause long enough to highlight. The area of Gilead in the ancient day and time was perhaps the most prominent salve-making place on earth. The best salve there was could be had from Gilead. So if you need some topical ointment, or if you needed some kind of ointment to apply, likely you could do no better than to obtain salve from Gilead. We now appreciate a bit better about the background of the question. The God of heaven asking, Is it there balm in Gilead? Of course there was. And the people knew about it. Look at the next question. Is there no physician there? You people are sick, the prophet would say, and you need the services of a doctor. Isn't there balm in Gilead? Isn't there a doctor there? The obvious answer again was Yes. You and I again today appreciate the help, the recovery, quite often the favorable things connected to the services of a doctor. Those two questions, however, bring us to the last question of the chapter, the ending one of verse number 22. After asking about the bomb in Gilead, and after noting that there's a doctor there rhetorically, now this interesting question. Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered. If they've got Balm and Gilead, and if they've got a doctor there, why don't they apply it and get better? Why are they refusing the treatment that's offered? Why are they refusing? They've got access to it. It's not as if. It's unknown to them. They have the means to access it, and it can be so readily applied. And so God asks, why then is there no recovery? As we began the lesson this morning, the question is certainly one I believe we now can readily understand. If the people had access to the remedy, if they had easy appreciation of the way to get it and how to apply it, why had there been no recovery? Why were things no better? Why was the hurt not removed? And so the rest of our lesson will be a development of those matters and applying them to us as well. Because isn't it true the parallel? that so readily at least shocks your mind and mine, is easy enough to see. Now, those people, of course, were engaged in activities which were not pleasing to God, and that array of sins, of course, troubled them mightily and led to a great deal of hurt. Today, the sin problem still exists, of course. Let's briefly note a few passages in the Word of God to at least continue to place those matters upon our heart. By far, the greatest problem of all time for the human family is sin. The greatest problem is not cancer, as bad as that may be. The greatest problem is not the threat of nuclear war, as challenging as that may appear. The greatest problem by far is sin, because it afflicts every person of every nation on earth, everybody. Some of these verses will readily come to our thinking. 1 John 3, 4 tells us what it is. Didn't the inspired writer point out to us, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And thus, whether it was descriptive of the ancient day in the Old Testament, or whether it was descriptive of even modern times and eras, any time, any place, anywhere, by anybody, that God's law is transgressed, Sin has taken place. Sometimes it can be sin by virtue of action. Sometimes it can be sin by virtue of words or language. Sometimes it can be sin by virtue of thought. Sometimes it can be sin as a result of violating one's conscience. Romans fourteen twenty three. But in any way by anyone at any time that God's law is transgressed, sin has been committed. The issue, of course, that makes it so serious is this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The inevitable conclusion, the unvarying consequence of sin, is death every time. There is no other option. Sin will invariably produce it. And that text we just noted in Romans 6.23 only asks us to appreciate the sister passage in James chapter 1. We're familiar with it as well, where in verse 13, the inspired writer begins by saying that anybody that sins can't blame God. For God is not the author of sin. He's not the one that makes you and I do it. But the text quickly reminds us everybody, when they're drawn away of their own lust and enticed... Then lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Did you notice it's of your own lust? You chose to do it. Isn't it true that there has been a notable doctrine taught for ages by some in the religious world that says, everybody since Adam has been born into sin and there's nothing you can do about it. In other words, you sinned, though you didn't choose to do it. It just came by virtue of your birth. Now, that's just a bald lie. That's not true. Little babies are innocent and pure. They're born in such a powerful and wonderfully innocent way. Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen, in fact, tells us that in the Old Testament. And didn't Jesus in the New Testament say, Bring the little children unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4 you and I might then notice that sin happens when we choose to do it. Nobody makes us. No one enforces it upon us beyond our ability to, inf- to, to alleviate it or to, in fact, avoid it. In fact, for those that are children of God, isn't it amazing the promise given in 1 Corinthians 10 where it says, "...there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man." But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. The sad fact is, when I sin, I choose to do it. I can't claim you made me. I can't claim that you by some means configured circumstances in such a way I had no choice. And the same's true of you. You and I choose it. And now the text of Romans 3.23 says, All of us have done it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen to weakness. We have all slipped into temptation by succumbing to it. Doesn't that sound then quite a bit like the circumstances of those early chapters of Jeremiah? Isn't it true that sin causes hurt just like it caused them hurt? Now, our hurt may not be famine... And it might not be some of the other physical attributes, but it brings emotional distress. It brings distance between people when we offend one another. It quite often does bring about direct harm in one way or another. But sin hurts. It always does. Is it any wonder that the character of that sin asks us then again to notice the parallel? God had told those people, you brought it upon yourself but yet you and I bring it on ourselves too. Is it any wonder then that we're encouraged to be those who are students so that we learn more and more of the Word of God and store it in our heart? Psalm 119, verse number 11, so that we might not sin. We can never know enough. We can never know too much about the Bible because its precepts, Its concepts, its teachings are those that will help us safeguard our life from the avenue of sin to at least appreciate through the nature of proper lenses what temptations are before us so that we can act properly, respond godly, and do so with care. One of the last things then on that slide highlights then the seriousness that Paul felt for this particular discussion You and I might recall in the 7th chapter of the Roman letter when Paul describes the circumstance of sin and what it does. He concluded those matters in verse 24 by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He used the word wretched. Due to my sin, the separation that I have enforced me from God, how wretched, how wretched am I am. And with that thought... Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Now, might we again say that God had asked the question, Is there any balm in Gilead? And the answer was yes. Are there doctors there? The answer is yes. Then why won't you take the medicine, and why won't you get better? Today, we might ask the same. Hurting is due to sin. The separation from God that follows from it. Is there a remedy for sin? Absolutely there is. Do you have access and means to it? By all means we do. Then why aren't we any better? That kind of question or that set of parallel questions will bring us to the following set of observations that we'll use to develop from this point forward in our study today. The doctor available today, the one who can address the sin problem, the one who not only has the necessary means, that which was the analog of the balm of Gilead, will be one that we will now look at for the remainder of our time this morning. If you and I were to walk along one of the streets of the city of Cookfield, and we encounter one of the doctor's offices there, we no doubt on the sign outside the building would see a number of things like the name of the doctor, the hours of service which he or she is open, the kind of specialty which that doctor then can address, and perhaps an invitation to various patients to come. May I offer to you that the Word of God does the same thing to us because the following sign might well be hanging outside the doctor's office who can take care of sin. Let's give some thought to who he is and what He does, and how He does it. He's called the Great Physician in Matthew 9, verse number 12. When you and I encounter that particular passage, we remember that the Great Physician is under discussion in the sense that He is presented as the one opposite to the character of sin. If you'd like to look at the way that's worded, it does in fact bear a strong connection to our study already this morning. In that passage of Matthew chapter 9, the author puts it like this. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Now that was a circumstance and scene about a woman who was afflicted, of course, with this issue of blood for a number of years, and she herself knew about the services of the great physician, desiring to touch his garment, and understanding the healing that would in fact follow. If you turn to Mark chapter 2, you'll notice this presentation about the physician. This was a scene found beginning in verse number 17. He says, "'When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, "'They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. "'I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance.'" Did you know with me that there was a description of those who were in need of a physician, and he said it was the sinners. And he pointed out that he was the one issuing the invitation. Is it not then clear the Lord presented himself as the great physician, the one who had the means and the capability to address the issue and the matter of sin? And so at the top of the person's sign the identifying matter of the doctor, we would recognize Jesus Christ Himself, the great physician. But as, as easily as that part of the sign is presented, note with me what occurs next. What's His office hours? What might be the times at which He is available for service? Interestingly, and rather amazingly, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, we'll put it in language like this. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Hebrews 13, verse number 5, the inspired Hebrew writer would say, again speaking about the office hours of the Master, he pointed out the language again of the great physician, But there, the wording used takes on a very interesting and perhaps unexpected way of writing. Allow me to share it with you. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 168 hours a week, Some. 3 million, or rather thirty-one million five hundred and seventy thousand seconds a year the great physician is available you'll notice he is thus open at all hours of the day and night it does no good to claim I don't know when the doctor's open, I don't know when he's in now is not a convenient time for him there is no such thing he's always in You may notice the next on the slide, we might ask, well, who are the available patients? That is to say, what kind of service can he render? In our day and time, we have some doctors that are urologists and some that are oncologists and some that are general surgeons and others with a whole host of other specialties. Aren't we impressed as we come to ask, what are the great physician's specialties? What is it that he's able to address? Revelation 22:17 perhaps says it the best. Whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. It doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. It doesn't matter whether it was something spoken or something thought or something done. It doesn't matter whether it was something left undone. The same doctor can handle all of it. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that comforting? Isn't that impressive? Inasmuch as that invitation is extended in Revelation 22, it, of course, leads us now to note, we know who the physician is. We know his hours of service. We know the kind of matters he can address. Number four would be this one, his specialties. We spoke about that at least somewhat interestingly a moment ago, but perhaps another verse could shed a rather dramatic light upon that thought as well. Matthew 1, verse 21. You might recall, even before He was born, it was there referred by way of the angel to His father, His earthly father Joseph. Call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Which sins? John would later say in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The sin of the world would be any sin and every sin. The great physician, you see, has the means. The anecdote, he has the proper medicine. He has the cleansing agent. Earlier today, we've noted the balm of Gilead. The master, you see, has balm far better than even what Gilead had. For we read in the Hebrew letter about that agent, beginning in Hebrews 9, verse 22, "...for without the shedding of blood is no remission." And so this doctor uses his own blood, his blood, because that blood, you see, is far better than the blood of any animal. Hebrews 10, verse 1, The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But this gentleman's blood, this man's blood, you see, not only could, but it could even cleanse the conscience. Hebrews 9, 14, Is it any wonder in that light? Then that we seemingly have a very special doctor here. He's open all the time. There is no case that he has ever lost. Anybody that comes to him has always been recovered. He's never failed. Now doctors today, despite their best efforts, there are things they don't know. There are particulars of which they're unaware. And despite the best medicines available to them and the best wisdom involved in the treatment, Things will not always go toward recovery. But with the Master, the great physician, there's always recovery. Sin is always removed. It's always taken away and forgiveness from it is not only known, but it's abundant. For that reason, notice the bottom. So what are the treatments? Those in the Old Testament era needed access to the balm of Gilead, which of course with some money they could obtain or perhaps the services of the doctor, which with money they could obtain. Aren't you impressed? In one sense, the services of the great physician are free. Now, there's another sense in which it's not, admittedly. But look at some of these verses with me. That physician himself said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth, and is baptized, shall be saved. And thus, one then appreciates the need to believe upon the Lord. This mental confirmation of understanding that the Master indeed is the great physician, that He can, in fact, bring the healing that He says He can, and that He can position one in such a place as to enjoy the marvelous eternal life to follow. This great physician went on to say, and is baptized. That belief, as it leads to repentance, and as it produces confession, it will have the consequence, the culminating beauty of baptism, in which finally the blood is applied. That blood, that agent that we've studied, it is, it is not applied in belief. It is not applied in repentance. It is not applied in confession. But it is in baptism, for the words of the Scripture so say. Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, points out to us that we are buried in baptism with Him for the remission of sins. Is it any wonder in that light then that we notice that this statement of Mark sixteen sixteen is a particular service needed by those who have never sought His services before? It leads me to ask this. Does the great physician welcome return patients? What if we have already sought his services before, but then we find ourselves again embroiled in sin? Can we go back? Does he take return patients? Is he of that kind of doctor? And we read that he is. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, the point is made that those who again have already sought his services once, but who have fallen into sin again, it is told, is it not, in that place, if they will confess those errors, confess those sins, He's faithful and just to forgive them. The great physician is available. Available for each of us today. And maybe at this time, as we just merely summarize what we've already said, I used that sign before to point out the features that you now see. The major matters to note, the physician is available just like it was in Jeremiah 8, verse 21. You notice that his hours are fantastic, absolutely unlimited. We also notice easily that his patients are such that he could address any sin problem there is. It doesn't matter what kind. Finally, we noticed his specialty is unlimited. There is nothing that can be said in terms of a case he doesn't know how to handle and a case that he, in fact, will fail. I might say in light of that, I hope we each are impressed with a great physician. And as the Word of God presents him to us and even highlights the opportunities available from him, no wonder then we're in position to simply say, as those treatments are not only accessible, doesn't it now impress us with this? I mentioned a moment ago that in one sense they're free. He invites one and all to come, but He asks everything of you in order to be a follower of Him. You've got to deny yourself, take up His cross daily, and follow Him. Luke 9 23. You've got to put the kingdom of God first. Matthew 6 verse 33. You've got to declare Him as absolute Lord of your life. Acts chapter 6, or rather Acts chapter 3, verses 15 and following. But maybe it is in that light. Today, the gospel plan of salvation is simply the remedy which the great physician has given. There might be one in this audience today that, having never sought the services of the Master... Maybe at this point you and I realize that His services are as great as we've discussed. Won't you believe in Him with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If you have sought His services previously, but again, due to choices you have made, choices again of which you are not proud, choices that have brought hurt to you and to others, and you want those to be gone, the great physician, his door is still open to you. He begs and pleads, I can take that issue from you. And just like it was in Jeremiah 8:22, when God asked, Why then is there no recovery? If the bomb is available and the doctors are there, why is not my people's hurt removed? Similar question could be asked of you and me today. If we are living a life of habitual sin, the blood of Christ is available. Access to it is easily accessible. Why am I not better? It's because I have sought the services of the great physician. Today, don't leave this building like that. Let the peace of God rule in your heart, Philippians 4, 7. Let the comfort and ease of knowing you're a child of God and your name is the book of life, let that be something of which you can live in full harmony with the tranquility that it brings. All that's left today is simply our statement of conclusion. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? God asked those questions in Jeremiah chapter 8, and He asks them in parallel to, me, to you and to me today. If you need to respond to the gospel's call of invitation, realize the great physician is available. His hours are, as we have described... And He can handle any issue related to sin that you bring Him. And He is anxious to help you. He wants to. He would love to. It would thrill Him to the greatest. And we would be happy to celebrate. Today, if you need to come, won't you do it while together we stand and sing?